So my dad passed away in 2015. We weren't talking and it took a month for his family to track me down. Before I ever knew he was gone, I started hearing from him in heaven. It consumed me. How is communication with the other side even possible? I left my corporate gig, studied with spiritual teachers on every coast, and worked with my angels to figure out the answers. Today, my mission is teaching you how to raise your vibration, shift your thoughts, trust your intuition, develop your unique spiritual gifts, and connect with your loved ones and angels on the other side. Friends, when you have these tools, life really does become heaven on earth. Hello, beautiful souls. Welcome back to the Angels and Awakening podcast. I'm your host and author, Julie Jancis. And today we're here with a very special guest who has studied the brain of patients who are grieving and knows the inner workings of the brain and what's happening as we go through the process of grief. So this is gonna be a really fascinating in, uh, discussion today. If you're somebody who's listening to the podcast, who has lost somebody and is working through that, you're going to come away with a lot of takeaways that you can use right here, right now. For everybody else who maybe has not lost someone close to them, you can still derive and get a ton of value out of Mary Francis's work because it goes very deep into understanding the brain and what's happening with the brain. And as you're going to see, she's going to talk about today, it's not just the loss of a loved one. There are different inner workings that happen within the brain, even as you go through a friendship, right? And you feel close to that friend, or maybe you even feel a distance with a friendship. There's things happening within your brain here uh, that we're going to talk about. So her book is called The Grieving Brain. It's wildly fascinating, definitely one that you should have on your bookshelves. Um, and her name is, um, is it Dr. Mary Francis? Yes. 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 Okay. So Dr. O'Connor, thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, it's so nice to be here, Julie. And do feel free to call me Mary Francis. Oh, okay. Okay. Perfect. Mary Frances. So I want to begin with you talk about in your book, when you lose someone, the brain actually has these different dimensions of time and space. And we think to ourselves, okay, this is where my person is in the world. Okay. My kiddos at school right now, my husband's at work right now, and we're actually physically locating them within our brain and tracking them even when they're not around. Yeah. So what happens to the brain when we lose someone? Yeah, the, you know, because our loved ones are as necessary and important to us as food and water, the same ways that our brain tracks, you know, how will I get my next meal? Where will I go to get that? And when will that be? Just as you said, the brain devotes a lot of resources to being able to predict when will we see our loved one next, right? When are they getting home? When do I expect them so that if they're not there, then, then I feel I should go out and find them. That's the sort of natural state of being in a close relationship. 
Well, the difficulty is when you have the death of a loved one, it isn't that they are lost in time and space. It's that the map no longer exists. And that's a very difficult thing for the brain to understand. It really wants to send you to where they are or to get them to come back. And there's not a way to do that. And it's very confusing for the brain. Okay. I want to walk through this step by step because I've lost a couple of people in my life, um, uh, my dad and a couple other people that when I found out about their passing, the immediate initial response that my body had was almost like I wanted to throw up, just like the wind had gotten knocked out of me. I just had this sick feeling where I did run to the toilet a couple of times and just stick my head in the bowl. What is happening in those moments when we first initially hear about a passing? You know, people are quite different. And so everyone will have probably a slightly different memory of of what that awful, awful moment was like for them. Um, But many people do experience it very physically, the way you describe, um, sort of getting the wind knocked out of them or feeling nauseous. Some people just feel numb, honestly. Uh, It doesn't really seem to penetrate. Everything takes a slightly unreal quality to it. And then, you know, for lots of us, we don't actually really remember that moment. It's so much for us to process that we don't actually sort of lay down a very good memory of what it was that happened at the time. So there is quite a variability in just that awfulness that happens. So let's go back to what you were saying before. So then our brain really doesn't have a grasp on where they are. And there's a moment in your book where you talk about um, how when people used to back in the day, go see a counselor, the counselor would say, okay, um, if they're trying to have that connection still with that person on the other side, which is something that we teach here, they would say, okay, that's bad. You're not getting over this person fast enough. You need to move on in order to have closer relationships to the people who are currently living. But in your research, you found out that that wasn't true, correct? That's right. We sometimes call this in psychology continuing bonds. And I think that you put it very well, Julie, when you said that our, you know, psychological understanding of what's going on has really changed, I would say. So what matters most is that we are finding a way to move forward in our current life, but with the absence of that person. It's not that they go away. It's more that you bring the absence with them, in a sense, with you. And so in research that I've done in a sort of daily diary format, where bereaved people, widowed people in particular, are telling me kind of what happened that day, we know that a lot of people talk to their loved ones, right, who are deceased. They may ask them for advice, They may tell them what their day was like, even if it's not a specific conversation in their head, they are very frequently reminded of the person because of things they see, right, Uh, in nature or, you know, in the neighborhood. And those connections 
are sort of a transformation of the way we relate to them once they are not on this earthly plane. So it is still important that we have living loved ones because some of our caregiving and caretaking needs are uh, are really fulfilled by people we can physically interact with. But it doesn't mean that those relationships don't live on in our in our virtual world in the head. You know, our our brain still interacts with them, and as long as people are able to, um, you know, restore a meaningful life, then kind of whatever it takes to do that is working. You know. Yeah, yeah. So I have a question for you, though. When it comes to this work, I believe in the other side, right? I believe in God, universe, source. You could call it heaven, call it the other side, call it what you will. I do believe that there's a place over there where our soul is omnipresent and that we really do have the ability to connect with them. I'm wondering in your brain research, have you found that when people have that connection and think of them in terms of being in a space over in heaven, the other side, does that help the brain then to kind of say, this is where they are, right? Because we're kind of dealing with this spatial dimension. Talk to us a little bit about that. I think it is fascinating. If you consider that the brain is very concerned about when you'll see them next and where they are during the whole time you have a relationship with them, maybe it makes sense that we also have big questions about where they are and when we'll see them next, even after they've died. And what I find fascinating is most religions of the world have a way to answer those two questions. They have a place that they think of when we think of where the loved one is, right? It could be heaven. It could be, um, you know, uh, across the river sticks. It could be, you know, lots of places. And, and also when we'll see them again. So Dia de los Muertos is a whole holiday around when we're able to be in contact with our loved ones again in the Mexican tradition. Um, Judgment Day is another way to think about when we will see them next. So I do find it fascinating that so many religions sort of take up this question of when and where. Now, as a neuroscientist, it isn't my job to say whether those uh, beliefs are true or not true. But as a clinical psychologist, it is useful to know if having those beliefs helps or not. And a piece of research that I find very interesting is a very large study done of bereaved people, but it started before they were bereaved. So they enrolled a whole bunch of couples. And when one member of the couple died across the next 10 years, they then re-interviewed the remaining, the surviving spouse. And what that meant was we could look at their beliefs before the death happened, right? They weren't being selected into the study because of their beliefs. And what we discovered was people who had a way of understanding the world that incorporated death. So that could be a religious view, but could also be like a philosophical view or um, almost like an agricultural view, you know, death is part of the cycle of life. People who had a way of understanding death before the loved one died had an easier time, maybe not easier time, their grief was not as prolonged or severe 
presumably because they could sort of fit this one experience of death into a bigger picture of how they feel it works. And so having that big picture did seem helpful to them. That's amazing. And in what ways did it show as beneficial? You know, the outcomes that were being looked at in that study included symptoms of depression, for example, and symptoms of uh, grief that we think of with yearning and even emotional pain is another term that we use. So it's not to say that people didn't experience grief. We all experience grief, but that it was not interfering with their, you know, day-to-day functioning as much as for others who didn't maybe have this big picture view. So let's talk about this a little bit. I was uh, freshly out of college, had um, a very close friend in my workplace who was probably 15, 20 years older than I was at the time, loved her, loved her, loved her. And she lost her husband um, in the middle of the night one night, came back to work. And our boss was like, okay, go take your two weeks off and come back and Really, I could see and feel the frustration within him of that she just wasn't present. She just wasn't back two weeks after her her vacation or not even vacation, her morning time was over. And that lasted for so long, you know, that tension that I could feel within the office. And yet I'm wondering from a clinical perspective, Is there something where you are looking at the brain saying, because I think workplaces need to understand this, it's not going to be a two week process. We're all gonna go through this at some point. Why isn't there a better structure set up for people who are grieving? How long does the brain, because I know even after my dad passed and we weren't close at the time, we weren't talking and it was, it's had such a big impact on me. I started this podcast. Um, yeah. I, I felt like I was just a zombie, yeah. you know, and, and almost like underwater for yeah. months. Yeah, that's right. I think for most people, it is more than two weeks, right? I mean, at the very simplistic, in the in the most simplistic way to answer your question, it's more than two weeks. Right. Um, and just as you say, it's, I mean, there are a lot of things often to do in that first two weeks that you can't do while you're at work. Obviously, there's funeral arrangements and social security, you know, clearances and, you know, all sorts of things to manage. But the impact that it has on us takes a very long time in the brain. I mean, one way you can think about that is simply that our brain has to rewire to understand how the world is now. Well, creating neurons, you know, making those new connections, that's a physical process. And, you know, we don't just heal a wound on our skin overnight. That just doesn't happen. So similarly, even if we think of it, again, in the most simple mechanistic version, it takes time. But more than that, I think, if you have been with someone for a long time, whether that's a parent who you know, you've, you've interacted with your whole life, or at least has been in your life in one way or another, or a spouse, um, or even a best friend that you've had for a very long time, the brain has to understand 
that they are gone, which we've already talked about is very confusing. And also, what does that mean for my life now? So if I use the word daughter, like you and I have both lost our father, if I use the word daughter, that actually implies two people, right? The word describes me or the word describes you, but it implies that there are two people. And so it's a part of sort of how do we operate in the world, given that this person is gone? And it takes a long time to figure that out. What does it mean to be a daughter in the world without a father or a parent in the world without a child or without a, a husband or a wife, whatever it is? And you know, your brain is sort of doing that on the back burner in every tiny little interaction you have. And that takes a lot of processing power, right? It's like when your computer gets slowed down because it's trying to install something. So you can't really work on your Word document because it's doing something else. I think that feeling of not being able to concentrate and feeling really distractible is kind of understandable when you think about it that way. Oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. So, So periods of grief last differently for every person. And do you see that scientifically when you're looking at this? Yeah, we see a lot of variability. I sometimes think of it this way. My my close friend and and grief researcher, Kathy Shear, says that, you know, grief is the form that love takes after someone has died. And you think about how different our love is for different people, right? You think of how you love your best friend, and that's really different from how you love your mom and your sister. So maybe it shouldn't surprise us too much that our grief looks really different for all those different scenarios as well. And I think in the how long does it take, which is, of course, the magic question always wanted to be answered, right, by everyone. I sometimes ask this in response, which is, uh, uh, how long did it take you to get over your wedding day? Right? <laughs> like, that's right. not a question that makes any sense, right? Yeah. yeah. Because it just changes us. Yes. And, and it changes how we are in the world and, and what we do and what we value and how we think about things. and the death of a loved one is similar. It doesn't, it changes us. It isn't going to end per se. Okay. So then you talk about this in the book, which just like brought tears to my eyes because I could just so feel it, you know, a woman being at home and hearing the garage door go up and thinking to yourself, okay, um, my husband's home. And then having that thought, no, he's not here or going through his clothes in the closet and the brain will bring up a thought, oh, I need to save his shoes because he's going to need these. So there's some, um, I don't want to call them unrational thoughts. There's some thoughts that still can come up. And you talk a lot in the book, which I talk about a lot in the podcast, which two opposing things can be truth at the same time. Um, But what's happening within the brain as it's bringing up thoughts? We know it's not true. We know he's not here, but we have these triggers, right? What's happening there? Yeah, I think it happens on two levels. Uh, One of them is just habit, right? So we save a lot of time and energy by having habits, right? When you brush your teeth, you don't think about each step, right? You don't think about, and now I should uncap the toothpaste. And now I should put the, you know, on top of the bristles. You just do. 
And we're very good at human beings. Our brain is very good at sort of filling in the blanks so that you just proceed as usual. So if you've had thousands of days of experience where you're sort of in this dance with another person in your home, your brain is going to just fill in what should happen next for a long time. And it's not that it's irrational. I mean, it's irrational in one sense, but it's that your brain is a prediction machine. And this is the best prediction that your husband is coming home or, you know, you should wash this laundry and put it back in the drawer. So on one level, it's just trying to unlearn all those habits. But at another level, you can think of these two different streams of information that the brain is using, just like you were talking about. On the one hand, you have these memories, right? Like, you know, rationally that this person has died. You can recall the memory of being at their funeral or, um, or even being at the bedside in some cases when the person died. But there's another set of information that the brain relies on. When we create a bond with another person, along with that bond comes a very clear belief. They're going to be there for me, and I'm going to be there for them. And that is just everlasting information. So the problem is, on the one hand, you have this belief, and on the other hand, you have this memory, and those two things conflict. So it takes time for the brain to kind of decide which kind of information to rely on. And so sometimes you're still in the, they're there for me. They're out there. I, you know, I'm just going to pick them, pick up my phone and text them. And then you remember you have this memory that tells you that's not a true belief anymore. So one of the ways that I describe it is like you said, we're never going to get over somebody. Um, we're going to move. We're going to find a way to be here and continue moving forward with our lives. I have described the grief that I felt when my dad passed, like if every day you're at the ocean and your feet are just touching the beginning of the ocean, just the waves, and you're gently feeling the waves roll up, that's kind of everyday life. But if you were like 15, 30 feet out in the hurricane, that's what it feels like to kind of be in grief. But there are still days, you know, almost seven years later, where I'll just out of nowhere, this intense wave just, and you can't predict it. You don't know when it's coming. It just comes on its own. Sometimes there's no trigger whatsoever. What's happening there? Is something mm -hmm. happening within the brain at that mm -hmm. time? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, think about for, for the people, your living loved ones, right? Think about how often they pop into your head during the day, right? Oh, oh, shoot, did I put the money in my daughter's backpack that I meant to? Or, you know, you're in a meeting and suddenly you think, oh, I wonder if my husband's going to pick up chicken on the way home, right? There are all these moments where your loved one pops into your head. Well, perhaps it's not totally surprising then that even after they've died, you continue to get these push notifications, right? Because this, this relationship is so important. And so your brain is sort of reminding you every so often, you should pay attention to this, uh, to this relationship. You should think about this person. So I think in the brain, it's going to keep doing that for a long time, just naturally. Of course, 
once someone has died, then that's really painful because of the knowledge that those things aren't going to happen in real life. Um, and that makes it different, of course, than when you just think it when you're sitting in a meeting and you have a living spouse. So the we know that that takes a long time, that those intrusive thoughts are really normal, that there's nothing wrong with you if you keep having them. And I like to make this distinction between grief and grieving because I think it can help in our expectations. And so I love the way you describe that. So it's sort of like, Grief is that moment when that wave just overtakes you with its ferocity. But grieving is the way that grief changes over time without ever going away, right? So as an example, my, my sister is engaged right now and there's we're going to have a wedding, right? And I know that on that day, she and I at some point will be overtaken with the wave of grief that our mom isn't there. Now, if I thought of that as meaning I'd done something wrong, that I wasn't done grieving or I hadn't done my grieving right, then that would be an awful outcome. But instead, I think of it as this is just a natural response to being aware of her absence. Her absence comes with us, even though it was 22 years ago, right? So if you're expecting to never feel grief again, you're going to be disappointed or you're going to think you're abnormal. But if you think of grieving as that's just a change in how I understand these waves of grief over time, then it may feel more manageable or familiar at least. Yeah. Um, What ways have you found through your research and through your own experience of losing your mom of how I know that there's like, We don't want people to become addicted to different substances or rely on substances in any way, shape or form. And we know healthy ways, but is there a way to also look at the brain and how the brain works in relationship to grief to understand healthy modalities of grieving better? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I would say it this way. I think what I've come to understand over many years now of doing this research is that the most important thing is flexibility. So it isn't that any one given coping strategy is bad in and of itself. It's that if we that we need a toolkit of lots of ways of coping and that it really matters what situation we are in, right? So um, <laughs> the morning after my mom died, my best friend and I, she had died in the middle of the night and, and I was there and my best friend and I went to get breakfast in the morning. And the woman who owned the restaurant knew me and came up and, and gave me her condolences that my mom had died. And she said, what do you want, honey? You know, I'll, I'll give you anything. And I said, can I have a beer? And she said, of course you can have a beer. You know, it's eight o'clock in the morning. And that was an appropriate way to handle that moment. Now, if I had a beer every morning at eight o'clock for the rest of my life, that would not be great, right? That would have real, real repercussions <laughs> for my liver, <laughs> But in that moment, even having a drink was an appropriate coping mechanism. Do you see what I mean? So we can do lots of things. We can process it with a friend. We can write about it. We can, you know, write letters to our loved one. Um, But we can do other things too. We can completely deny that it's happening. We can completely avoid it and just sort of think, you know, today, right now, I'm cheering for my daughter's soccer game. I'm just going to pretend everything's normal. 
And in that moment, that's a perfectly acceptable and, and healthy way to grieve. I love that. Thank you for that. Um, one of the things that I have learned from doing this podcast and this work is not to kind of put this hierarchy on passing, you know, where, where I think I used to believe, okay, well, I only lost my dad. It's not as bad as somebody else who lost their partner or their child. But I've heard a lot of people recently say there is no hierarchy to grief, that when you lose somebody who is truly close to you, no matter whether that was a pet who was like your child or, um, a best friend or somebody that grief is still grief. Can you yeah. talk to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think I even understand a little bit why this comparison comes up and how painful it is for people to hear that too. So grief is this natural response to loss, but you can think about like, but loss of what, right? And so I think about it in terms of there are certain people in my life and they are really a part of the way I face the world, right? So that can be a pet. So that can be, you know, every morning I get out of bed because I got to take, you know, Hannah on a walk. And that's a really important part of how I function in the world. That's a part of me. Losing that is going to be devastating to, you know, have an amputation of that part of me. And that can be true for just as you say, all sorts of different people. You think about losing an ex-wife or an ex-husband can be very painful um, because they were a big part of how you faced the world. So I think it isn't so much, you know, the category that these people fall into. We even know from physiological research that people have a physiological stress response to all types of different losses. I think the reason that we sometimes say that the death of a spouse or the death of a child is, quote, the worst kind of loss is because those are often the people who help us function in the world, who are a part of how we face the world. So because they, because that category often is that important person, then we can kind of use it in a looking back sort of way. Ah, it makes sense that people who lose spouses and lose children are having this really difficult experience, but it's because of the kind of loss that they have. And that would apply no matter who the person is. Okay. I understand that. I see that. When you talk in your book, it was like an aha moment for me because you were talking about when you, and, and as an empath, I feel this, right? You have a friendship and you can feel when you're very, very close to that person. You're vibing, you're resonating, you're on the same page. And you can also feel when you have this distance come between you. And sometimes that distance comes because your mom, you know, you're busy, you've got children, you're not, you know, able to be there for the other person as much. Sometimes other factors come in that kind of make you feel this distance. But 
what you say, it's not just an intuitive sense. Something is actually happening within the brain that we're picking up on. Tell yeah. people what's happening in the brain at that time. Yeah, I find this to be fascinating. And this is this is not actually my neuroscience work, but work of um, uh, another neuroscientist named Daniela Schiller. And what they were curious about was the way we talk about distance in time, like far and near, the way we talk about distance in location, in space, right? Something's far away or it's near to us. It's actually the same language that we use about psychological closeness. You know, my sisters feel so far or, you know, so near to me. Um, and so they were curious if this isn't, as you say, just a metaphor, but is actually part of how the brain works. And so they did this neuroimaging study where they showed people photographs while they laid in the fMRI scanner. And some of the photographs were uh, distance, so like a bowling ball, sort of different distances down the alley toward the pins. Uh, and then another set of slides was about time, so sort of a calendar, something that's far out or something that's soon. And then another was people that the individual in the scanner had described as being feeling close or feeling distant. And so different people sort of in different um, at different levels of closeness. What is fascinating is that this close far dimension is something that the brain encodes in the same place, regardless of which type of close and distance that we're talking about. And so it's encoding distance in time and space the same way it's encoding distance in emotional closeness and that the brain is constantly tracking how close and distant we feel from our loved ones. I think that's just sort of a fascinating thing about the human brain. It is. It really is. Well, and it's weird that we can feel it. So I'm going to yeah. tell you this and you'll get this. I remember being like in high school and in college and I had to study to get good grades, right? But I would study my butt off and I would have days where I would tell people around me, like, I don't feel like I could fit one more thing in my brain. It almost feels like my my head hurts, yes. right? Like I've been studying so hard. It was a feeling. And and I started this angel Reiki school because I don't, you probably don't know my backstory, but my dad passed away. We weren't talking at the time. He was on his third wife um, and she didn't call to let us know. So I was hearing from him a whole month before family called to inform me. And um, as I have people go through my angel Reiki school to learn mediumship, intuition, how to bring through their spiritual gifts, what I hear a lot of times is that people will have like soft headaches or headaches. And I think that what is happening is you're learning to use a different part of your brain than you hadn't learned to use before. Mm. But I, it's so fascinating to me that you can really feel certain mm. things that are happening yeah. within the brain. Yeah. It's interesting. I, you know, uh, we know that there aren't sensory um, nerves in the brain so that, uh, you know, for example, we can do brain surgery on someone while they're awake, which sounds really weird, except that you can't feel anything in the brain, but you can definitely 
encode things in the brain that then affect how your body feels. And so even if it's just a map of sort of how your body feels, that map is is the encoding in the brain, um, but it can be representing what's in the body. And I think that's definitely true that when you're having new experiences, you can have all sorts of physical reactions. Okay. So let's go into a different direction here. Since I started this work, I've gotten the blessing of talking to so many different people. And some people are team like, yes, 110%. There is God, universe, source. Some people are more, uh, what do you call that? Like pragmatic, where they're like, no, it's just the brain, brain giving you feedback. But there is a possibility that if there is I believe there is God universe source made our brains. The brain is a tool that uses to kind of compute all of this information. How do you tie the two together, God and the brain? Yeah, that's really interesting. I, you know, I'm, I come at it from both sort of a cognitive neuroscience perspective, but also sort of a Buddhist perspective, to be honest. And I think about it this way. So, you know, when we think about where do our thoughts come from, you could think of them as coming from outside, right? They're they're thoughts in your head, but but they might be coming sort of from the outside or from the inside, so to speak. I think it's almost a little bit different than that. I think of it in kind of a, a transcendent kind of way that we, it isn't just that I have grief, it's that there is grief, right? And so when I'm having that experience, it is in some way related to a lot of other people who have had that same experience. And in that moment, I'm connected to all of those other people. I am an example of what it is to be a human being, to have suffering. And because then of that connection that I feel with all these other human beings, that to me is what I think of as being transcendent, right? It's the connection between us that often comes about because of terrible personal experiences we've had. It's the transcendence that really, in many cases, helps us to kind of overcome our own personal suffering. And so I think the best way, the best metaphor for this is If you think of each human being as like a drop of water, each drop of water doesn't have a lot of power on its own. But if you put all those drops of water together in the ocean, they have tides and they have waves and just enormous power when we are all connected. And I think of that connectedness as being sort of the transcendence or what some people might call God. Interesting. Well, it kind of gives you a bigger visual if you think of all the people grieving on the planet at the same time is there a neuro wiring or some way that it's all interconnected between those people who don't even know one another yeah yeah oh. i i think that you know the reason that we have that natural empathy response think about crying it's just our natural response to sort of reach out when someone is crying, even when we don't know them. I think that is part of the, as human beings, we are a group. We're not just a bunch of individuals. And that interaction between us is often motivated by things that have happened to us as individuals, but create a bigger response. So was there any scientific study done to show that when people 
who are grieving come together, that there is healing that occurs? Hmm. You know, I, I won't say something kind of quite that specific, but I would put it this way. We know that social support is how we would describe it in psychology. Social support is critically important. So the people around us supporting us as we go through this experience is very important to us sort of being able to find our way. And you do see that in all sorts of studies, in, in physical, you know, um, manifestations, so in, in medical outcomes um, and in psychological outcomes, having that group around us um, is just so important to our uh, adaptation. Awesome. I love that. Um, all right. I have another question. This is something that actually came up and I'm going to change it just a little bit to, cause I don't want, you know, anybody listening to say, Oh, this was me, but it's just a situation that was brought to my attention a while back and it just keeps replaying within my mind. So there was a client of mine whose father was passing away from cancer in the hospital had several different children the mother told the kids not to go to the hospital because um, she didn't want them to see dad that way so the kids did not fly in across the country and then the dad is passing is in um what do they call that um like hospice care yeah and he looked at his wife and he said where are the kids and my client said this just continues to haunt her to this day she was trying to abide by her mom's wishes um but is just crushed and so to those who are going through this right now and to those of us who will go through it in the future how do you look at this and and does that impact a person's grief process to not actually be there at the end Mm, yeah there is a little bit of research about this um that suggests that it isn't even so much being sort of present in the room when someone passes away that has an impact on our grief, but getting a chance to say goodbye. So whether that is, you know, in days before or, um, you know, in in other contexts, right, maybe over the, over the telephone or um, that it is getting a chance to say goodbye and maybe say, I love you or I forgive you or thank you or those those kinds kinds of conversations do seem to help people then afterward. And I think to the degree that we can, it's great if we know and sort of to make time and space to have those conversations. But let's face it, that is not always possible for a whole host of different reasons, including the one that you mentioned. And so then afterward, uh, I think about it in a slightly different way, which is It is very common for most of us to have these thoughts afterward that keep running through our head of what I call the would have, should have, could have, right? And these are the just, you know, if only the doctor would have done this, or if only we could have, you know, known it was going to be icy on the road, or, you know, just a million possibilities. But here's the challenge. 
there's no answer to those questions, right? There are an infinite number of them, and there's actually no answer. And in fact, those scenarios sort of all end with, and then my loved one didn't die, right? And the problem is your loved one did die. And so if you spend a lot of time in this sort of virtual reality where things could have turned out different, it actually prevents you from spending time in how things really are now, right? And so it's by being in the here and now, even when it's sometimes painful, sometimes bittersweet, that we come to understand how to restore a meaningful life. And so I think you kind of have to find a way around those questions because there's no real way through them, you know? Well, and one of the things that happened, you know, after my dad passed away, and I'm wondering if this is similar and kind of what you're talking about here, is I understood rumination of thoughts better. Um, I had a period of time where not just because of that, but for other factors in my life, I just didn't feel like living anymore. And from the time that that thought came in of, I don't want to be here anymore to the point of like, no, like kind of planning it out a bit was about three weeks. And I, I saw how quickly when I ruminated on thoughts and allowed myself to go into it, how destructive it was for myself. Yeah. Is it the same? way with the grieving brain that when you allow yourself to ruminate on the parts that you truly cannot control, you don't have control over, that it it takes you to a dark place. It certainly can. And the difficulty is that it doesn't have a benefit for you, you know, and people have to find different ways to deal with these thoughts because they are very intrusive. And, and especially early on, they're kind of natural. Like they just come up. There's nothing wrong with you because they're coming up, but we can learn to manage them better. So even for myself, if I get into a state where, you know, my brain is just churning on something like this, I've discovered that literally if I can change the environment I'm in, literally walk outside or talk to a friend or go to the store, right? Just the most basic kind of behavior change, environment change, that can help, right? That can help me sort of break that cycle. So I find that to be very helpful. But if, if, if you think that the solution is finding an answer to that question, right? It's probably not a way out of those thoughts. Yeah. You have to find different tools and techniques to stop the rumination from stop yourself to attaching to those thoughts. That's right. Powerful. Wow. Mm. Later on in your book, you also talk about the funeral and allowing people to say goodbye. And you touched on this a bit. But that funeral really does give people closure so that when their mind is searching for the person to say, no, my loved one is right here, it almost brings you back to the funeral and to, to continue to bring yourself that, that closure. Um, so for people who went through COVID and didn't have the opportunity to say goodbye, Is there another way that you can find Mm -hmm. that closure? Yeah. Human beings really benefit from ritual. I, you know, I don't think we know exactly why, 
but we've been doing it in every culture and every period of history, right? So it clearly is important to human beings. And here's the thing, you're absolutely right. I think the lack of um, having that experience of close loved ones around you, reminiscing, crying together, all those things. I'm Irish Catholic, so you know, uh, sometimes some drinking would would sneak in as well. Um, and not having that has made it hard for some people for the reality to sink in, just as you were saying, because you can't sort of refer to those. But here's the interesting thing as well. Ritual sort of marks, you know, before it was this way and now after it's this way. So before you were single people and now you are married people or before you were a child and now you're a man. Um, Similarly, with funerals, it's sort of we recognize before that this person is in the world and now we all recognize this person is not in the world. But rituals are actually quite flexible. So what is important is to mark the change and not necessarily how we mark the change. And so um, Zoom funerals are a thing. Whoever knew that was going to be a thing, right? Never, um, no, I didn't even hear about it. Right? Exactly. Wow. Couldn't even imagine. Yeah. And and yet a lot of people now have experienced that. I had a, a very elderly uncle who died and we had a Zoom funeral. It was certainly the first one I've ever been through. And some people describe that as not fulfilling to them. And I think it depends in part on how that Zoom funeral went. But other people describe that it can be a real closeness too, right? You can see each other face to face in the way that maybe you can't even quite at an in-person funeral or people get to speak in a way they might not have. It's sometimes smaller than a regular funeral would be. And many people find that to be intimate and supportive. Um, So I think the important part is really about marking the ritual, marking the closure of this person's life. And that really can be done at any time. In many cultures, it's not done until a year after the loss. And so, you know, the first anniversary. So I think people, if they are feeling that need for closure, can find other ways to have rituals, thinking about what is it important that I'm missing? What is the symbolism I'm missing? And how could I create that now in order to mark this passing? All right, final question here. So you talked about different cultures around the world having different traditions of keeping a memory alive, perhaps lighting a candle. We've got Day of the Dead. Um, There's different traditions. Do those help us in the healing process? How do they help the grieving brain? Mm. You know, I think probably a combination of things. For one, just as you said earlier, I think having those memories that we can refer to, this must be true because I was at the funeral, you know, in the moment where you feel like it just doesn't feel real, you still have that to hold on to. Another reason I think is just the support that we get from from the other people around us. So that we are willing to stop and and mark time and to you know put on special clothes and come to a special place and it really demonstrates just a support a supportive feeling from from all your sort of living loved ones and in a moment where you may feel very alone it doesn't make you not feel alone it doesn't change your yearning for the person but it does provide a support around you while you sort of restore your life And then the last thing that I would say is the other function I think rituals have 
is that they connect us in, in our culture and in our history. So, you know, when I go to a funeral, I know that my parents went to the same kind of funeral and their parents went to the same kind of funeral and their parents went to the same kind of funeral. And again, I think there's this feeling of not being quite so alone. Clearly there are other people who have got, who've been in your spot and have also found a way through it. And so even if I can't see a way through it at that moment, I kind of have a little bit of faith that because others have done it and others have stood literally in my shoes at a funeral like this or at a memorial like this, I think it gives me a little bit of faith and hope. I love that. Um, Mary Frances, thank you so much. Tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find your work. If you go to maryfrancisoconnor.com, you can uh, find more about my work and connections to the book or anywhere that books are sold, The Grieving Brain. I love it. Well, we're, we're going to put that in the show notes below and a link to the book as well. Really help uh, everybody listening, um, if you're experiencing grief right now, um, to really understand what's happening with your physical body, with your mind, with your brain, as you're going through this process of loss. Mary Frances, thank you for taking time out of your day to be here with us. I really appreciate you. This was really a great conversation. And thank you, Julie, for bringing it to so many people. Oh, you too. Beautiful souls, I just want us to take a moment and pray together. I want you to start by taking a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And I just want you to feel your crown chakra opening at the top of your head. I want you to feel God's loving oneness energy pouring like a waterfall of love into your entire body, surrounding your auric field, filling every molecule of space within you, surrounding you. And I want you to feel that you are so filled to the brim with oneness energy that it begins to radiate out like the rays of energy that radiate out from the sun. And friends, what I want to do this month is every time you come to the podcast, I want us just to pray together. The reason we pray, we have shown it scientifically, it does make a difference. When you pray, they have shown scientifically that it does something within another person's energy field. That person might not know that they are being prayed for, but something is happening energetically. So let's come together right now today and just pray. Ah, Danny, if you could take that over again. So let's just come together today and pray. There's a lot happening in the world right now, and this is not about letting fear consume you. This is about taking your energy and directing it the way you want it to go. And so we're going to use our intention today. We're going to use the love that God has just poured into us today to radiate that love out radiate our intent prayers ask God to surround angels with the people on earth who need it 
And in particular today, we're going to ask that God surround with angels, the people of Ukraine, to provide the people of Ukraine with angels that give them strength, that give them hope, that give them divine wisdom. Friends, this isn't a political thing whatsoever. This is a human thing. This is a collective consciousness thing. And what we're doing today is bringing more love into this world. So I want you to just take a moment to pray with me. Dear God, universe source, we know that there are babies that uh, should be in a NICU right now, special needs children who should be in an ICU hospital right now, who are not able to because of the conflict that is happening in Ukraine. And God, we ask you to protect those children, to heal those children, to surround those children with the angels that they need to give them everything, to become fully 110% healthy. God, universe source, we pray for the mothers who are pregnant right now, who are fear-filled of how they're going to give birth, where they're going to give birth. We ask you to put their hearts, their minds at ease and create a safe place for them to bear children into this world. God, we pray for the displaced families the children who are unsure of what's going on, who have fear in their hearts. We pray for those children to be surrounded by angels of comfort, angels of love who fill them up so that they know they're not alone and they feel a semblance of safety, of security. We also play, pray for those displaced families, those who are left behind, those who are still fighting. God, we ask you to give them courage. We ask you to give them strength. We ask you to fill them with every single thing that it is that they need to get through this time in their life. God, Universe Source, we ask you to provide everyone in Ukraine with angels to surround them. God, Universe Source, we also pray for those who have lost somebody in this conflict, that you help bring healing to the hearts of those who are left behind. And friends, I just want you to take a moment to add in your own prayer right here, right now. Friends, your angels ask you to hold a vision of future earth. And that is one filled with peace, with love, where there is all peace on earth. And if your egoic mind comes in, gets in the way and says, that's not possible, Julie, it is. We all have to hold that vision within our minds right now. 
So start by holding it within yours, by seeing all of earth as peace-filled, as loving towards one another. Your angels say that now more than ever, it's so important for you to do your own work on yourself. Because when you're spiritually healthy individually, it leads to us being spiritually healthy as a collective. So doing the work on yourself individually lends itself to peace within all. When you have peace within you, we can have peace within the collective. So friends, please know that your angels do not want you to be fear-filled. They want you to, anytime your egoic mind brings in fear, use your intention. Use your ability to pray. There is no wrong way to pray. To pray for people you care about, even if you don't know them. Use this opportunity to look at your own life and the lessons that God, universe, source, your angels are trying to bring into you right now on how to bring more peace into your life so that as you create a more peace-filled world for yourself, we can come into a more peace-filled collective as a whole. Friends, I want you to see one more time, peace on earth, peace within yourself, peace within your own life. I want you to send that energy that you are filled with, that oneness energy out to the world, out to the people of Ukraine, out to everyone on this planet who needs it. Remember, it's not coming from you. It's coming through you from God, universe, source. If you allow it to, that oneness energy is an unlimited source that will flow through you to everybody who needs it here on earth. Friends, thank you for coming together. Thank you for praying with me. Thank you for sending love out into the universe. Every single time your egoic mind tries to bring you back into a fear state, I just want you to stop for 30 seconds, call in your angels and just pray. Just feel that oneness automatically radiating within your body and just send it out into the world to those who need it. Friends, I love you. Spirit loves you. Your angels, your loved ones on the other side, they are looking out for you. They're with you right here, right now. Open up your heart to miracles, to blessings, to this vision of peace filling this world. Bye, friends.